You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Well, it is good to be back. Um, I took four weeks off, and you know what's funny? When you take four weeks off and you don't tell your church while you're taking it off, um, you just make up your own story. And so there have been some fabulous rumors that I have come back to. I was let go. It's disciplinary action. The board's tired of my teaching. Um, You've replaced me with a new, better-looking pastor. You probably thought that was him this morning when he just came up. Gotcha. Um, No, or a serious one was that I spoke in the beginning of May about the depression I'd been going through, and was I taking time off because I was struggling with that? So, no, no to all of those. It was just a vacation I take every summer, time to get away with the Lord, time to reconnect, time to take time off. Um, and just spend time with my family. Uh, To update you on where I have been with that, since I spoke it that Sunday here at LifePoint, and I I spoke what I had been going through, that combined with mentors and helpers and people in my life who it was no longer something I was keeping secret, I haven't struggled a day since then. And God has set me free from it. Now I know... I know the way depression works now, and I understand that it could come back, but through God's grace and by doing the same things I would tell you if you were to come to me for counseling, I've got people and things in check where if they start to see me pulling away, and sort of the thing depression does, depression wants to separate you from the rest of the world, uh, they're going to reach in and pull me out, they're going to slap me upside the head and say, hey, hey. You're not getting lost in this again. So I'm doing great. My vacation, my time off was great. The Lord has uh, spoken and set up a a great vision for the end of the year leading into 2019. And this morning's message over the next, and this next couple of weeks are going to be what that is. So if you'd bow your heads with me in prayer, we're going to ask God to move mightily here this morning. Father, we need you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would blow through this place, that the same words that you have given me over the last month, the message of your power, of your grace, of how you overcome sin and death in us, would be shared uh, clearly and succinctly here this morning, and that you would change the hearts of men and women in this room this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay, so... What I said there, change the hearts. I just want to start with that. In our culture, we separate the mind and the heart, don't we? We separate the mind and the heart. We got right brain and left brain people. One of them is thinks with the mind, they're rational. The other one wears their emotions on their sleeve and they're creative, and we separate it like that. In the biblical times, when it talks about the heart, when we hear the words, your heart was hardened, it is not the same. It is not your emotions or uh, your feelings, any of that stuff. It actually meant the seat of who you were. The very foundation of who you were was through your heart. They weren't separated so much as we talk about between the mind and the heart. It was seen as your life, your passions, your desires, and your fears were controlled by your heart. So what you went after or what you chose to stay away from wasn't controlled by the mind but was controlled by the heart. And it sees it almost as as one, the mind and the heart, okay? I want us to understand that because I'll be honest, for a long time in church, I looked at those as two separate things. I looked at different churches as, uh, well, the Bible talks a lot about the heart, and this type of church, this type of doctrinal teaching just looks a lot at the mind. 
And one of the things the Lord has shown is, no, that's not the case. Understand the language, understand the context of what was being written in the Old and New Testament when the Bible talks about the heart. You see, here's the thing with the heart. As I spent time this summer in the scriptures and as I spent time asking the Lord to reveal truth to me, all throughout the Bible, there are stories where either God or the men who are uh, God's apostles, God's prophets, talk about this condition. And the condition can be seen in Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as on the day of testing in the wilderness. Now that's talking about Moses and the people in the wilderness, right? We're going to read that today. So grab a Bible, open up to Deuteronomy 29 and chapters 30. Go ahead, open up your phone. I won't have it up here on the screen, uh, mainly because it's just too hard to see. But grab a Bible, Deuteronomy 29 and 30. And as you're opening up there, Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible, if you start at the beginning. As we open up there, I want to show you something else. And I alluded to this briefly last week. And this is where, towards the end of uh, my time off, this is where the Lord really began to kick this idea into gear. Is uh, went and heard a pastor preach two weeks ago down in Phoenix, uh, who's actually from... Uh, California, Pastor Bill Johnson, and he was here at a church in Phoenix a couple weeks ago. And I wanted to see what he had to say. He's a big pastor, has a large church and a large following, and I wanted to be there in person and see what I thought. What, what is, is God using this guy? Is he for real, right? And he's speaking on Mark 6, and he's got a message about how God, uh, like I said last week actually, God is using us. God wants to use you. He doesn't want you to just sit on the sidelines and pray that someone comes along for him to use. He wants to use you. He's empowered you through the purposes and the use of his Holy Spirit to do the work. But I want you to see something here at the end of the story of the fish and the loaves in Mark 6, where uh, the 5,000 are fed, and that's just the 5,000 men, but we know they had wives and children, and the crowd was said to probably be closer to 20,000. And as soon as they're done... Verse 45 of Mark says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd. After saying farewell to them, he went up to the mountain to pray. So Jesus sends his disciples on to the boat to cross the sea. He goes up to the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. When he saw that they were straining at the oars against an adverse wind, he came towards them early in the morning walking on the sea. He intended to pass by them. Can we just enjoy that part? Jesus saw the disciples struggling. He saw them full of fear and worry that they weren't going to make it because the seas were rough and he was just going to walk right on past them. I love that. I love that. God wouldn't do that. Sure he would. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him, and they were terrified. What in the world is that figure doing walking on this turbulent water? But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, because their hearts were hardened. There it was. The same message the Lord 
my whole time off had been speaking to me as I'm sitting there down in Phoenix listening to this sermon. It was a great sermon about the power of God and uh, about understanding that God has empowered you to do that, to, to do his work. But when I heard that again, it was like God just kept bringing this back. Their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. These are the disciples. These are not the Pharisees. These are not those who use church for their own personal gain. These are not philanthropic unbelievers who are just trying to make their community a better place. These are the 12 men God chose to be his closest friends while on the earth in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. And he said their hearts were hardened. So much so they still do not understand who I am and what I'm capable of. And so this led me, this led me back to Deuteronomy 29.30 where we're going to be this morning. I want you to see something here and I'm going to pick some verses and read them. I want you to see that this isn't uh, special about any one sort of group of people. This isn't just the Jewish people or God's chosen people at the beginning of the church or an American thing. This is the human condition. The human condition. Verse 29, Deuteronomy, this is Moses towards the end of his life. And what I love about the end of Deuteronomy is Moses doesn't beat around the bush, so to speak. Where's my drums? <laughs> Nobody? Burning? Burning? He doesn't beat around the burning bush? Okay. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in the land of Moab. In addition to the covenant that he made with us in Horeb. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. To Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. He's reminding them, right? You saw the plagues that God brought down upon Pharaoh. You saw the signs that he had set forth. You saw how Pharaoh let us go from the years of slavery and death and beatings. You watched it all. And then you watched as we left, the Red Sea split and we passed through. And then you watched him provide water and food for you during the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Verse 4, but to this day the Lord has not given you a mind to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. What? <laughs> that should make you say what? You just told me one sentence prior that I have seen all of the handiwork of the Lord. And in the very next sentence, he says, but you have not seen. You have seen, but you have not seen. You have not heard, you have not understood. And here's the point of this condition that Moses is talking about. Jesus is going to address it, Paul's going to address it, Peter's going to address it, John's going to address it, Luke's going to, every apostle, past every pastor since that time has addressed this fact, what we're going to show you, what I want you to see here this morning. In 1 Kings 18.37, it says, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Moses is speaking of the same hard heart that you will see throughout Scripture from beginning to end. It is, after all, the very thing that led Adam 
away from the relationship that he had with the Lord. It was a hardened heart that said, God is no longer my supreme treasure. My creator, the everlasting, the alpha and the omega is no longer what my heart desires. In fact, I am bored with him. My heart now desires something greater. At least something I perceive to be greater. And Moses, what he's saying here in Deuteronomy 29.4, to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Because if you love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, then God will have given you that love. He will have placed that love inside you. And he hasn't, and you do not love him that way. So this is a difficult message. I've said this before from this stage. Because there is nothing you can do to work your way towards loving the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not talking there's nothing you can't do to earn your own salvation. I'm not saying that. I feel like most of us, if you're American, you've been in church and name that time, you get it. Jesus died on the cross. That's, that's that. But you see, here this morning, I'm speaking to unbeliever and believer alike. Is that there is nothing you can do to turn your heart back to God on your own. Is that humbling to you? Is that scary to you? I want you to take a minute with that thought. I don't want to leave that thought yet. There is nothing you can do. You can't pound your fists on the ground. You can't cry out loud enough. You can't come to church enough. You can't journal enough. You can't offer enough volunteer hours at a soup kitchen. You can't help your neighbor enough. There is nothing you can do to turn a calloused, hardened heart back to God. So what are we to do then? What are we to do? It's so humbling, and this is where the Lord met me in this time off this summer. Do you love me as your supreme treasure? Do you love me? Am I absolutely the most important thing? And do you love me just for the sake of loving me? If I never healed you, if I never healed your family, your father who is sick, if I never healed those friends who you ask and request that I would bring about an end to their cancer or their sickness or that I would bring them back from the brink of death, if I don't do any of that, if I never increase your financial situation, do you still love me? Am I still your ultimate treasure? You see, that's what is being talked about here. And that's what this book is about. It's about God's pursuit and passion of your heart. Not that you would love him because it's the right thing to do. Or that you would love him because your culture says it's worth it. Or that you would love him because you studied and theologically and using reason and looking at the world and how things are made. It's the most logical choice. But that you would love him solely for the purpose of loving him. 
You see, there's a thing about Jesus. The gospel is the most inclusive religion in all the world. No religion comes close to it. Every man, woman, and child of every denomination, of every social situation, of every creed, of every race is welcome. There is nobody who's excluded. Not even the worst, most vile, wicked sinner, murderer is excluded. All are welcome. But what we often miss in our modern preaching and our modern reading of the Bible is this understanding of what it means to come with a hardened heart. That Jesus alone turns that heart and as the wording here in Deuteronomy circumcises it. Cuts away the hard, calloused skin, the hardness that sin has caused. And he gives us a new heart. One that can love him, one that can see him, one that can worship him for who he is and not for what he can do. Jesus says in the Gospels, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. I want you to know that when he's saying that, it's not a this for that. It's not, if you love me, then you'll obey my commands and that proves that you love me and by if you obey my commands long enough, you'll love me more or you'll love me deeply. No, he's saying, if you love me for me, if I am your supreme treasure, if I am what you find the most beauty in life in, then the natural outworkings of that is you'll obey my commands. And this next point is what the Lord was showing me this summer. Have you ever asked yourself this? Have you ever asked why is it so hard to do what is right? Lord, why is it so hard to do what is right when temptation and and lust and desire and passion seem to overtake me at times? Why is it so hard to do the things that I know I should do? Paul wondered it. Paul asked it. Why do I do the things I do not want to do? I mean, if you're a believer and you've given your life to Christ. You've said, I believe in the cross, I believe in the death of Christ, I believe in the repentance of sin, and the blood of Jesus covers me. Then you have that circumcised heart, you have that that new heart that Jesus promises, but here's, here's the rub, okay? Is we will often take that new heart, that new mind, and we will turn it back in for the old one. We will exchange it back. We will say, no thanks God, this is too tough. And as you've heard over this summer with the preaching, we don't count the cost or we didn't count the cost enough or we honestly entered Christianity under the wrong circumstances where we were hoping that we would have the happiness we saw on the other people's faces. We were hoping it would save us from the divorce that we were heading towards. We were hoping it would save us from the financial ruin, or we were hoping we would receive the healing that we saw others receive because they love the Lord, and when it didn't come, we said, no way, I'm out. See, we never actually loved Jesus just for himself, just for who he is. 
Deuteronomy 36, right, the very next chapter. It says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. The Lord is going to be the one who does it. He has to be the one who does it in your life. You can't muster it up. You can't work towards it enough. And all of the things that Moses could have said about why they didn't see, about why they didn't understand. Deuteronomy 29.4, the Lord hasn't given you this heart. He hasn't done it. He hasn't moved you from just amazement at seeing the things into complete love for who he is. The truth of the matter why most of us in the church do not have this heart, well, many of us, let me say many, is because we have come to the Lord not for who he is, but for what he can give, for the promises of what we hope to receive from him. And as I spent time with the Lord this summer, this truth just kept ringing in my ear, Lord, what have I, what have I replaced you with in the last four or five months in this time of depression? Right? Depression is a mental illness. It's a misfiring of chemicals in the body. It's all sorts of things. I believe it's also, there's a spiritual component to depression towards the separating of you from loved ones and from the Lord himself. I watched the movie Paul, the Apostle of Christ. I don't recommend many, many movies from stage, and I certainly don't recommend many Christian movies because some of them are so cheesy and hard to watch. But if you get it the moment, watch Paul, the Apostle of Christ. It's incredibly well done. It's, uh, I believe, very biblically accurate. There's, of course, some liberties because there's things we just don't know about that time that aren't covered in Scripture but are covered in outside documents. So the point is it's a very well done movie. But there's a scene in the movie. Paul, the movie is about Paul and his final sentence in prison in Rome under Nero's rule where he will be beheaded for his faith in Jesus Christ and his teaching of Christ. And it's those last days of his life as Luke is spending time with him. And we know that's true from Paul's, uh, Paul's letters and Luke's uh, writing. We know that Paul in his letter to Timothy says that Luke is with him. But there's a scene where he's having a nightmare. And the nightmare is all of the people that he tortured and murdered. He sees Stephen in his dream. Where he stood over and resided over Stephen's death. Remember that? He sees the families of those he killed and tore apart. When he was under this understanding that he was charged by God to wipe out Christianity and the, or the way is what it was called. And as he's this old man who has given his life in service to the Lord, laying in a jail cell, he wakes up from the dream, the nightmare, and what he says so wrecked me, just tears begin to come to my eye because that is where I was. But what he says as he's laying there, under his breath as he wakes up, he just says, your grace is sufficient for me. And he just starts repeating it over and over. Your grace is sufficient for me. As I saw that here at the end of this summer, and I thought about the darkness, I thought about the people that I have sat with and counseled with in my five years of being out here. As I've seen 
sin tear apart families and lives and bring individuals from the high places in their life down to nothing. And as the last year has been especially difficult on me personally, those words, your grace is sufficient for me, took on new meaning. Paul doesn't ask that the Lord would change his situation. Paul doesn't ask that he would have nicer accommodations. He just reminds himself that the grace of God is sufficient. And if you're wondering here this morning, Lord, have you given me that new heart? Or because of Christ, I know that you've given me the new heart, but Lord, how do I act? How do I respond? Do I walk every day in this life like I've been given a new heart? If by, are, are my actions consistent with someone who speaks with their mouth that Jesus is the supreme authority of their life? Are my, I'm gonna say that again. Are my actions consistent with someone who says Jesus is the supreme authority of my life? In Ephesians 4, 17 through 18, Paul describes the Gentiles and the nations of the world, us, you and I to this day. He says, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their, ready for this word, ignorance that is in them. Why is there ignorance in them? Due to the hardness of their heart. Alienated from the world, darkened in their understanding, you see, the condition of hardness in, is first and foremost, foremost towards God. It doesn't mean that an unbelieving mother can't feel tender affections for their infant. It means that she cherishes the infant more than she does her relationship with the Lord. We treasure and we delight in our children more than we treasure and delight in God. And this is very, very difficult for us to get past. Is God truly greater than your love for your child? And don't say yes too hastily to that question. Because that's one of those questions where we know that when we're in church, the right answer is yes. But when we're placed in this situation where we're on our knees before the Lord, begging him to save our child who is sick and dying in the hospital, and he doesn't, that's where we really find out, is your love for God greater than the love for your child? But this is the level that the Lord is asking. This is why I said this is the conundrum of Christianity, the most inclusive belief, because he is the one and only God. That's why it's the most inclusive belief, because he is your God. He is God in China. He is God in India. He is God in Yugoslavia. He's God of it all, which is why it's inclusive. Why do you think every other religion hasn't strayed far from where it started and is mostly for people in its own culture? Because they're false. They're false. They imitate the real God, but they aren't the real God. The real God loves you and gave everything for you and asks in return that you would love him and give everything for him. He doesn't say there are multiple paths and multiple spirits and multiple ways to him. He says there is one way to him, and it's his son, Jesus, who paid the ultimate sacrifice, who loved you and I before we would ever accept him, who spat... When we spat in his face, when we've rejected him, 
when we've slapped away the hand of, that he has held out to help us, he has still loved us and he has still pursued you. So many of us have been taught that loving God equals obeying God or doing things for God. But I want to remind you that's a fruit of loving God. It's just a byproduct. The apple is not the tree. It is a fruit. It is a byproduct that the tree produces. I'm going to close with this. We don't have time to get to the rest of it. I want to close with these words from Spurgeon. I want to call the band out. Charles Spurgeon gave one of the most impassioned, incredibly inspired message 151 years ago, 1867. And I want to read for you here this morning from the closing section of this sermon. And I want to offer you this same thing. Believer or unbeliever in this room, I've been a believer for 30 years. I have loved the Lord for 30 years. I have pursued him for 30 years. I have repented of my sin and gone back time and time again when I have fallen and he has always been there for 30 years. This year, this year marks 30 years for me. Three decades. And I can tell you, and I can tell you that there are times that even though I know I've been given a new heart, that I feel the hardness of my heart towards him. That I feel that I expect of him something that I have no right to expect of him. That I almost have a transactional relationship with the Lord. Sometimes it takes time off, it takes a two by four to the head, it takes whatever it takes for you for God to come alongside and remind me of how wonderful he is. Spurgeon says this at the end of this message 150 years ago. How transcendently foolish must those be who will not have Christ when he is to be had for the asking. Who would prefer the baubles and the bubbles of this world and let the solid gold of eternity go by? O fools, to play with shadows and miss the substance, to dig and toil and cover your faces with sweat and lose your nightly rest, to get the world's fleeting good while you neglect him who is the eternal good. O fools and slow of heart, to court this harlot world with her painted face when the beauties of my master are infinitely more rich and rare. Oh, if you did but know him. If you could see his unspeakable riches, you would fling your toys to the wind and follow after him with all your heart and soul. But may I have him, says you. You may indeed. Who is to say to you that you may not? Did not you hear the sweet notes of the hymns? Come and welcome, come and welcome. When heaven's big bell rings, it always sounds forth that silver note for sinners. Come and welcome. Come and walk. Leave your sins and leave your follies. Leave your self-righteousness. Jesus Christ stands at the open door of grace more willing to receive you than you are to be received. Come and welcome. Come and walk. I invite you this morning as we prepare our hearts for a time of communion 
that if you sense that, the Holy Spirit is here and he is moving in this place and he is moving on some hearts here this morning. He is turning some hardened hearts, some Christian hardened hearts, some believing hardened hearts, and some unbelieving hardened hearts here this morning back to him. He's, he's turning it back to him. And I want to invite you, you are welcome, come up. Come, you come forward. As we prepare our hearts for communion, especially if you're a believer here this morning, I want, I want to just guide you but if God is speaking to you about this issue, this, this hardened heart towards him, if you can't look and say he is my supreme treasure, it doesn't mean you're not saved. It doesn't mean that he's not the Lord of your life. It just means that you have put idols ahead of him and you have put other things ahead of him, even good things. And I just want to give you a moment, time this morning to come to the front, kneel at your seat, get down on your knees before the Lord and say, God, only you can soften this hard heart. Would you do that here today? Would you bring about the new heart that you promised? So let's bow our heads and then we'll, we'll partake of communion. Father, I do pray your spirit. I see it, Lord. I see what you're doing and I pray earnestly, God, that you would move on the hearts of men and women here this morning. we would not lie to ourselves. That you would show us really where we are with you. Really where we are with you. But God, what's amazing and what you're showing me here this morning is that for those who seek it, those who ask, you will strip away, you will circumcise, cut off the hardened, callous parts and return to us new hearts, fresh humble, desiring only you. Bring this about in Life Point Church. May we be a people, <laughs> not a stiff-necked people with hard hearts, but may we be a humble people willing to say, here I am, Lord, use me, for your purposes are greater than mine. In Jesus' name. Communion is the gift that the Lord has given us. It is the sacrament, the reminder of the cross. It is the reminder, the very reminder of what we speak of here this morning, that because of the cross, all we have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask. And the Lord will come and he will change your heart. So we invite you, one of the three stations up front or three in the back, come and partake of the bread which is the body of Christ and the juice the blood and partake partake now together so go ahead and if you'd like to come forward during this time come forward during this time if you want to get on your knees at your seat get on your knees at your seat but let this time be between you and the Lord